you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We're going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah 18. We are just a few weeks away of celebrating, to celebrate the 245th birthday of our country. Um, Sometimes I wonder how much longer we're going to make it, but (laughs) we can praise God for what we've been given so far. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It's a very familiar passage. You may recognize parts of it. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you a message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, or destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent. And, and not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and it does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I intended to do for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it is no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by the virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Does its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways, not on roads built up. Their land will become an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by it will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like the wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of disaster. They said, let's come and make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise 
nor the word from the prophets. Come, let us attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. At this time in the nation of Israel and Judah, uh, during the time of Jeremiah, the people um, had a king, had, had many kings. Uh, the, some kings were good, some kings were bad in Judah, Israel, and the northern kingdom, once it was split, never had a good king. And so God had warned them, just like he told them about the nations that preceded them, if they do not follow him, then they will become like the nations that they displaced. And God will push them out of the land, and they will suffer the same judgment. And so as Jeremiah is a prophet during this time, he has a word. Actually, he has a ministry that lasts decades to Judah, trying to call them back to repentance, trying to warn them what lays ahead so that they would repent and turn from their ways and they would follow God and be spared. And so Jeremiah is given a word by the Lord and it's an object lesson and it begins at a potter's house. So he goes to the potter's house and he sees the potter making a pot. And then the pot is marred in his hands, and then he reshapes it and makes it into another pot. And then God gives, uh, God gives to Jeremiah the message that he has for him. And that is that God is a molder of nations. He's not only a molder, but he's also a judge of nations. So whenever we say the word nations, so we think about, you know, something like our country. You know, our country is quite large if you think about how big nations are, if you think about the way that Israel was formed, remember there were seven nations that were west of the Jordan River. And so that would be roughly the size of Israel is today, if you include all the occupied territories, about the size of Massachusetts. And there were seven nations there. So nations in Scripture can be anything from the size of something like a county or maybe even a city-state, if you think about ancient Grecian history, or something as large as empires like the Assyrian Empire, or the Babylonian Empire, or the Medo-Persian Empire, or the Greek Empire, or the Roman Empire. So it can be any of those things. So God has a message that has to do with nations. So to have a nation, you need three things. You need people, you need land, and you need laws or a system of governing. And so God, whenever God establishes nations, they have different kinds of laws, different kinds of governing systems. It's interesting that whenever God established Israel, he took the, he took the descendants of Jacob, 70 souls, the scripture says, down to Egypt. And there he grew their population so that they would have the people part of the nation. But he didn't grow them in the place that would be the promised land. He grew them in Egypt, and then they became slaves, and then he brought them out. And then, that, having the people part, now they needed the land and the law part. So on the way, they went to Mount Sinai, and he gave them the law, not only the Ten Commandments, but also the Constitution for their whole nation, and how they would have everything from health law, civil law, war law, uh, how they would handle property disputes, all kinds of things that he gave to them, enough to run a nation. And then they came in and conquered the land after 40 years in the wilderness. And whenever God established a nation, it was a theocracy. 
So a theocracy is a nation governed by priests in the name of a God, of God or clerics in the name of God, or ruled directly by God Himself. So this is actually the only kind of government that God ever directly establishes in the world. So he directly established Israel, and they were a theocracy. When they had, he gave them all their laws, the priests were to consult God before they went into battle, or they had decisions to make, or some hardship happened. Uh, they went directly to God. They didn't have a king. They, didn't have, they had elders who handled civil affairs and, and administered justice according to God's law. But it was a theocracy, okay? There are not many theocracies today. So there are only about seven. So I'll read off a few of them to you. And you might notice a pattern <laughs> for theocracies. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iran, uh, Sudan, Mauritania, and, surprisingly, Vatican City, which only has a population of about 800. Okay? These are examples of theocracies. Okay? They don't, they're not following the God of the Bible, except possibly the Vatican, but they following, they're following Islam and Allah and the rule of law through, through the Islamic scriptures, the Koran. So God, when he has this period of time now, so that, that we have nations now, and we don't have a nation like, we have a nation called Israel, but they're not a theocracy anymore. They're, a, they're sort of a democracy. God, whenever he establishes the millennial kingdom, it will be a theocracy with Jesus Christ at its head. And all the nations of the world will submit to him, and he will rule, the scripture says, with a rod of iron. There will not be a choice about whether or not you obey God or not. Okay, at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released. He deceives the nations again. There's a, there's a battle, and then a new heaven and a new earth, and then there's a new... There's a new kind of government, and it's, again, a theocracy uh, with God directly in charge. And so the opposite of a theocracy, do you want to guess what it is? It's a democracy. <laughs> Does that send a little chill down your spine? <laughs> the opposite of a theocracy is a democracy where people choose not God chooses how they govern themselves. So here we are in a democracy. Um, God establishes theocracies. And uh, we have a lesson to learn from a failed theocracy from Israel and from Judah. So God is molding and shaping nations. What I, what I want you to realize is that God puts up and puts down nations. The kind of government we have is not a government that was created by God. It won't be the ultimate kind of government in the millennial kingdom or in the, in the final state. You know, after all, all this happened and we're in, we're in perfection with God, it won't be a democracy. So whenever we evaluate ourselves and we evaluate our nation, we need to realize that... We're not the pinnacle. <laughs> We're not the pinnacle of governance in the world and for eternity. Okay, we're actually at a, at a can be at an opposite end depending on what we choose. Um, 
So here's some examples. Um, God used uh, the nation of Israel. He molded the nation of Israel, and he used them to judge the Canaanite peoples. And so we see that uh, even in Genesis, whenever God promised to Abraham that he would give him that na- that this land that he was in. Uh, in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13 through 16, Then the Lord said to him, that's Abraham, he was confirming his covenant with him. Uh, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God uses the nation of Israel to judge the people of Canaan, which tells us that God is very active in world governments and in people groups, so that he's looking and he has a spiritual barometer that he's using with them. And that he has a limit to what he will tolerate with nations and their sinfulness. And so with the, with the Amorites, he says he's going to give them another 400 years to repent. But he knows that they won't. And then so Israel will come in and they will be God's instrument of judgment for the sin of the Amorite. During this time, it, it will be the kind of judgment that... The nations of the world now and our nation itself shrink at. So it will be the kind of judgment that God tells them, you go in and you destroy every breathing thing in that city or in that territory. Okay? It's a kind of a genocide. And, you know, we're kind of uncomfortable with that. Okay? But this is at the hands of God. Okay? We have to realize and remember that the wages of sin is death, and that God can exercise his judgment for the wages of sin at any time he wants to, and he's perfectly just in doing it. We forget the seriousness of sin. We forget that our rebellion against God is causing people to be murdered and raped and killed all over the world and our continuous Our continuous rebellion against God has ruined his creation and the way that he designed for the world to be. And that God has wrath against that. He has anger against that for us messing up his creation so thoroughly and causing so much bitterness and hate and death that he will give judgment to that. And he will begin some of it in this life for some people and for some nations. And so he uses Israel to do that. If we have a problem with God doing that, we're going to have a problem with the story of Noah. Because it's, it's not even genocide. It's humanicide. God is destroying almost every human being that lives and breathes on the face of the earth because of their sin. And saving eight on an ark. So God has this outlook as he looks over the world. And he sees what's happening in the world. And at times he will exercise his just judgment against nations and against individuals. 
And he uses other nations to do that. And he used Israel to judge those people. Take a look at Job 12, in, uh, beginning in verse 13. Job has a comment on this too as well. To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he's in prisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they, can devast- they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away, stripped, and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away, stripped, and overthrows officials long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours out contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the darkness. Without light, he makes them stagger like drunkards. You may be familiar with the scripture that says the king's heart are like channels of water in the Lord's hands. He's in control of all of these things. Even when things seem out of, totally out of control, he is in absolute control of them. One of the scriptures I was reading was likening the wealth of the nations like a, a nest with eggs. And it says that God reaches in his hand and takes it out. He reaches in his hand and he takes the young birds out. It's just that easy for God to change governments and kingdoms and rearrange the, the, the governance of the earth. So God is looking down at the nations. He uses them to judge and he uses, he uses them to reward people who follow him. Another example of that is the way that Assyria was used to judge Israel. So Israel was God's chosen people, okay, but they rebelled. They did not follow God. They they pursued false idols and did all sorts of things. You have to remember that the nations that they displaced had infant sacrifices. They sacrificed their children to the fire, to their gods, for fertility, for productivity, for their land. And that was part of their worship. And Israel participated in this, the sacrifice of this, these children. And so in Isaiah 10, uh, 5 through 7, and then in 12 through 13, he says, To Israel, who he raised up to be his instrument of wrath, to Assyria, who he raised up to be his instrument of wrath against Israel, woe to to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, that's the instrument I'm using against Israel, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he had in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. And then in verse 12, When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his willful pride, willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, 
by, my, by the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I, have, I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasures, like a mighty one I subdued their kings. So even, in the, even as God raised up Assyria, he expected them to have a measure of humility and realize that God was the one who had raised them up to do this, but they didn't have that. Also, Babylon is another example of a nation that God raised up to judge uh, Judah. From Second Chronicles 36, 35 through 21, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked his messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures from the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who had escaped the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word that was spoken by Jeremiah. So I want to read one more example of God using... um, God using an individual and a nation. And this time it's to bless and to restore Israel. So this is uh, Cyrus the Mede who, who is involved in restoration of, of Judah from Isaiah 45, 1 through 7. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their honor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, and I will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name, and I bestow on you a title of honor. Though you do not acknowledge me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness, and I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So as we're thinking about God as a molder and a judge of nations, um, the picture of the potter and the vessels that God makes, the context is Israel who he, try, who he was forming into to be a light to the nations. 
and yet they disobeyed him. And so he reshaped them into something else for his own purposes. And that God has this same kind of relationship with all the nations. So he says, you know, in verse 7, If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict disaster on it as I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I intended to do for it. So not only is God a molder and a judge of nations, but also God could change his announced blessing or judgment based on the response of the people or of, one, of their leader to his correction. So a good example of that is from Exodus uh, with Moses and the Hebrew people as they were heading out uh, into the desert and they went and then they quickly rebelled. And so in Exodus 32, 7 through 14, we have this account of Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Quick, go down from the mountain. He's up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way that I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now, leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them. And then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with evil intention, with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them off the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You bound yourself in an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster that he had threatened to bring on his people. So people can change and leaders can change God's, God's intended purpose for them or what he has designed to, for, to happen for them. So there's a great hope in that. And the great hope is that that destiny has not already been determined for our nation or any other nation. That we can influence that by our own behavior and by our own repentance and by the repentance of our leaders of our country Another example of that is Nineveh, Jonah with Nineveh. So you remember Nineveh did not want to go, uh, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh probably didn't want to go to Jonah either. But um, in Jonah chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Jonah began by going on a day's journey into the city and proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the, reached the king of Nineveh, 
He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself in sackcloth and sat in dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, and he relented, and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So this is an example of a city, specifically a a city of Babylon, Nineveh, repenting and God changing what he had planned in judgment for them. So that offers a great hope to everyone. And then in Josiah, uh, the example of Josiah in 2 Kings 22. So Josiah uh, had the temple, the temple was being cleaned for renovations, and then they found a book of the law, and apparently it hadn't been read in a long time, and Josiah was king during that time, still a young man. And they, they read the book of the law, and then Josiah's response uh, delays judgment on the nation of Judah. So we'll start reading in verse 16 of 2 Kings 22. This is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book of the king, that the king of Judah has read. He's speaking of the law that he read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I, I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and a wasteland, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing this place. So God, as he looks down from heaven, he's judging nations by whether they're doing good or evil. All the nations, our nations, are not like the nation of Israel. But he does look down upon us, and he has an expectation of good and not evil. And that his tolerance for evil is limited. And that his judgment against evil can be very severe. And it can be utterly devastating. In, in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about the different, the different results and consequences that God promised to the nation of Israel. All the plagues of Egypt. There was famine. There was drought. There was hail. There were insects. Uh, hordes of Locusts who would come and wipe out the crops. Their enemies would come and overrun them. So there's economic, environmental, disease, uh, international warfare. So there's all these things that God brings to bear on a nation in order to try to wake them up and to realize what they're doing. 
and that they're rebelling against him. And so he uses those in a way that pressures the people in order to help them to realize. We see this cycle over and over again. You remember in the nation of Israel, they come out of, they come out of Egypt, they go into the land, uh, they don't have kings, they have a theocracy like we talked before about before. They ask the priest whenever they want to find out, and they consult the ephod if there's a question about what they're supposed to do as a nation. But they go through this cycle in the book of Judges where that generation that saw all the miracles of them coming out of Egypt and were provided for while they were in the desert those 40 years, they come in, they conquer parts of the promised land, and then that generation dies, the next generation comes up. They didn't see the miracles, they just heard the stories, and then they begin to follow after the other gods that are around them, the gods of the nations. And it's that time then God begins to bring pressure on them as a nation. It's the Midianites or it's the Philistines or some other group comes and oppresses them, takes all their food from their harvest so that we find Gideon threshing his grain, you know, in a, in a, uh, a cellar type area so that no one can see him so he can keep the food that he raised himself. They have this kind of economic oppression by other nations around them. And then they cry out to God whenever they get, things get really, really bad. They cry out to God. And then God sends them a judge, you know, a Gideon or a Samson or a Barak or a Deborah or, or people like that to, to correct them, help them correct and realize that they should be worshiping God and put away their idols. And so they follow them, but they follow them only as long as the judge lives. And then once that judge dies, then they start the cycle of sin over again. So it's this, um, it's almost like they never were really following God at all. They're just taking cues from their surroundings. Things are bad. We need to change. You know, here comes a prophet or a judge. We should do this. Yes, we'll do that. And then things change for the better. And then once they, things get better, then they forget who caused all that change. It was God who brought them out of their slavery. God who brought them out of their oppression. God who brought them out of the famine or the disease or whatever it was. And then they forget God and then they go back to the old ways. So it's, it's not like they're really following God at all. They're just putting their finger to the wind and finding out which way things seem to go better. But without really acknowledging the one who's in control of all those things. And so they have these cycles of sin over and over and over with the judges until finally we come to Sam, Samuel. And you remember uh, Samuel's mother gives him to the temple when he's quite young and he's raised in the temple under Eli. And then he becomes the last of the line of judges. And so toward the end of Samuel's life, um, we have this uh, picture of him and he... The people don't realize he's getting old. He puts his two sons in charge, but they don't follow his ways, the scripture says. And so the elders get together, and then they ask for a king. And so Samuel immediately recognizes what they're doing, because so far up to this time, okay, they, they've had a theocracy with God in charge, and they consult God whenever they have a question or anything. Okay, and now they don't want God as their king. They don't want a judge like Samuel. They don't want Samuel's sons because they're corrupt and they take bribes. 
So they ask for a king like the other nations who will lead them into battle, they say. And so Samuel immediately recognizes this. You're changing from a theocracy. You don't want God to be your king anymore. You don't want God to be in charge. You want a king to be in charge. And so he warns them, and, he, and he's disappointed in that too. And, but God tells him, no, you give them what they want. They want a king like the nations. I will give them a king like the nations. And they get Saul, who ends up being a king like the nations. And so they go from a theocracy to a monarchy. Okay? And it's not an improvement. Okay? Because it's only as good as the monarch who's in, who's in power. And so with Saul, it doesn't turn out very well. With David, things go better. With Samuel, with Saul, uh, Solomon, things seem to go very well materially, but then he falls into sin. And then now we have a split kingdom, and things begin to come apart for the nation of Israel. So it's, it's not about the form of government. We're, we're never going to have a theocracy until Jesus returns. So as the church, we don't have a mandate to, you know, go and reform, you know, the politics of your nation and have, you know, the Old Testament laws as your laws. Uh, We don't have a mandate to form a theocracy. Uh, Scripture tells us in the New Testament that we live in submission under all the governing authorities that we live under. As long as they don't ask us to disobey God, we're to live in submission to them. So we're not to establish a theocracy, but we have a mission as God's people. And that is there's a message that can transform the world. The message of the forgiveness and the power of Jesus Christ. And that can transform governments. Not in, a, not in an active way, but if you have a democracy and people get to choose who their elected officials are, and the people are godly people, and they choose people who are godly people. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to outlaw thing, certain things as much as not support them. So the reason why pornography continues to persist in America is because people pay a lot of money for it. If people didn't have that habit, okay, then the pornography industry would go broke. And you don't need to make a law against it. If, you know, if people didn't, if people, if you didn't want people to be drunk and then, say, for some reason, like we had in our nation, prohibition, okay, it was an an attempt from the outside in to prevent some of the evils of being drunk, okay. It didn't work because it was from the outside in. But what if nobody drank enough to get drunk anymore? Would the ABC stores go out of business? Yeah, they have nobody buying their product. You don't need to make a law about that. Okay? So the, the way that God can transform a society is from the inside out, not from the outside in. Because some people believe that if we just had the right laws and we had really strict enforcement, you know, then, then we could solve the world's problems. The world's problems are sin problems. Okay? We don't solve sin problems by making laws. If we solve, and having harsh consequences, if we solved sin problems by making laws and having hard consequences, then Israel would have worked. 
because there's death penalty for adultery, there's death penalty for striking or cursing your parents, there's death penalty for kidnapping, there's death penalty for rape, there's a lot of capital punishment, okay? But it appears that it didn't work at all because it didn't change the hearts, people's hearts, the way that the transformation of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of us can change people's hearts and minds. As we continue to look at the passage, uh, going down to number, uh, um, verse number 11, so not only is God the, the molder and the judge of nations, not only can nations change the plan of God and leaders the plan of God by repenting, okay, and change God's design for them or delay God's judgment on that group or on that person, but also uh, God gives us a charge. It's a personal responsibility. So we're going from like the nation and looking at what the nation is doing, okay, and then God gives us solution to the problem of the nation, all right? So then he says in, in verse 11, Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing disaster for you and devising a plan against you. And then here's the prescription. Okay, so God has already decided, I'm going to judge you. Nothing changes. You know, there's disaster planned for you. But then this is the response. Return from your evil ways. And he's not talking about the government and what government policy is or the laws they're making because he says, each one of you. It's... It's not the government's fault, okay, that we have so much crime. It's not the government's fault that we have so much violence. It's not the government's fault that we have so much sexual crime, okay? It's, it comes down to individuals choosing and what they choose in their life. And so God says the answer, the, pres the prescription for this situation is that each one of us needs to personally turn from our sin. And then he says, reform your ways and your actions. And then, you know, God gives them the prescription. He gives this prescription to us to reform our nation. It's a personal prescription. It's, it's not a somebody else needs to do something. It's a I need to do something. We all need to do something. Part of that is personal in our own lives. We need to choose righteousness. We need to forsake sin. And we need to communicate the message that can allow people to do that. And that's through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out. But, and then we have the people's response in verse 12. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. So look at their response. They say, it's of no use. That's a way of saying it's hopeless. It's a way of saying I can't change. We can't change. Okay? It's a way of saying when God offers to us the transforming power of Jesus Christ, when we say or if someone says I can't change, I'll always be like that. Okay? It's a way of saying God is not strong enough to conquer my sinful heart. The blood of Christ is not valuable enough to wash me clean of all my sins. The Holy Spirit 
living inside of me is not powerful enough to overcome my sin nature and the things that I want to do. It's like a no-confidence vote in God whenever a person says, it's useless, it's hopeless, I'll never change. We have people sitting in here (laughs) that thought it was hopeless for them. They had addictions, they had, you know, ways of life that were very firmly entrenched for decades and decades. And yet God's transforming power changed them because it wasn't about them, it was about God. It was about them submitting themselves to God. It was about them studying God's Word and letting the truth wash their minds clean of all that impurity, about letting God's truth soak into them so that then they begin to see that when Satan lies to them and tells them, oh, you do this, you'll be more happy. Oh, you do this, it'll be, you'll be more fulfilled. And God is saying, ah, you do that, you shoot yourself in the foot. You do that, you shoot yourself in the other foot. I mean, it's like whenever we see things from God's perspective and we really believe what He said and that He really does have our best interest in mind and that He really would spare us a lot of pain if we would just follow Him and believe in Him, then He empowers us through His Holy Spirit to change. And so, but this is the response of the people. This is the response of the nation. Um, It's no use. We'll just continue what we're doing now. uh, And we're going to follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. There is a refusal to submit to God. And we have in our nation people who refuse, absolutely refuse, to submit to the goodness of God. To the commands of God. They absolutely refuse. We, we have a pride month now. It's not enough to have a day in our nation anymore. We have a pride month. It reminds you of the scripture that talks about those people who, whose glory is their shame. This is the nation that we live in. We live in a nation that's been killing babies, unborn babies, since 1973. And they ordered tens of millions and will we'll, you know, march in the streets for mothers' right to kill their babies. I mean, that's, that's where our nation is. And if we have a Supreme Court ro- ruling in the future that says that that's, you can't do that anymore, you can bet there will be a lot of response to it. Because they have this kind of attitude like the people of Israel, um, Judah did at this time. We won't change. We will continue doing what we will do. And we will do it as long as we want to do it. But they don't take into account the justice of God. They don't take into account that God has been patient with our nation all of these years, these decades. They don't take into account that God is a molder and a judge of nations. And that if He wants to, He can crush our nation. He can crush our nation. And there's nothing people will be able to do about it. Because they will have earned the wrath of God. And I don't know what's going to happen to our nation. We've had a pretty remarkable year. It's been pretty remarkable. The U.S. economy has gone from, you know, 100 miles an hour to 25. Okay, and picking back up speed again now. Okay, we've gone from 
You know, people that glory in sports, all the sports are shut down. People that glory in the media and all that, you know, all, all those things, the big, the big ticket places, the concerts, everything shut down. Okay? It can ha- and it's happened like that. And who would have ever predicted it? Who would have ever thought that it would be like that? Now we know that the only thing that needs to happen to have a shortage of anything in the grocery store is the people to think that there'll be a shortage of whatever it is you're thinking about in the grocery store. You know? Things that are totally unrelated to any kind of sickness. Okay? It's, it's kind of like, you know, whenever he talked about uh, he'll make rulers lose their minds. You know, you're reminded of Nebuchadnezzar whenever he had a season where he went out and ate like cattle and ate the grass and his hair grew long and his nails like the talons of an eagle. Okay? You just think the people, like, what is it, you know? I went to Walmart the other day. I went a couple different times. Cannot find brown shoe polish, okay? What does that have to do with COVID? Nothing, absolutely nothing. What does toilet paper have to do with COVID? Absolutely nothing, okay? It just shows how irrational and how driven by fear we, that people can be. And how, how out of control, really, we are at managing our own economy, or our own health, or this whole country, or the world, okay? It's, it's God who's over all these things. And every now and then, He just needs to pull the, the cap off, okay? Just to go, okay, this is what it would look like if you guys ran it, okay? This is what it would look like. Okay, but I'll, I'll put some sanity back into people's minds again, okay? But did you wake up? Did you wake up and realize that the U.S. economy is really not that reliable? Did you wake up and realize that inflation is really not that stable? Did you wake up and realize that the rulers of your country really aren't that smart? Did you wake up and, and, and realize that if everything else goes away and we just have God, we've got a gracious plenty? We've got everything we need. And that's how our brothers and sisters are living on the other side of the world, who are persecuted Christians, who are run out of town and have to go live in the jungle because, you know, some, some extremist group came into their village or whatever, and they have God, and that's all that they need, and God provides for them. But we have this idol of nationalism or our government or something i'm not sure what it is now we you know we depend we you know who's got your back well uncle sam's got my back i got checks now coming in (laughs) it's like i was talking to jeremy a little while ago i was like you know if i got laid off i'd get a 10 percent raise really Uh, it's amazing (laughs) it's it's absolutely amazing but what are, we, what are we building? What is our government doing? I mean, are they trying to create a, a God-like dependency, you know, for people? And are they really in control? Do they really know what's going to happen when we get a gazillion trillion dollars in debt? I mean, do we really know what's going to happen with that? You know? God has blessed our nation in so many different ways. 
We have so much abundance in so many different ways, but we, we haven't acknowledged Him and submitted to Him as a nation. We have, going back to what we talked about, a theocracy versus the democracy. Okay? So a, de- a democracy says, and this is, you know, this is, this is where we have a, this, this double-edged sword, okay? Democracies tend to be pluralistic. Okay, which means that you have freedom of religion. You have freedom of speech. Okay, uh, with that freedom allows you to be, hopefully, not persecuted, which is totally against what the Bible says. <laughs> okay, that we're, you're guaranteed persecution. Okay, so I don't know why we're going to, we're going to exalt the opposite form of government that God ever designed, ever implemented, <clears throat> and then rest our security on that kind of government, a pluralistic kind of government, so that we have, so that the government doesn't care. It's like a, it doesn't matter to the government whether you worship God or Satan, or no God at all. That's the U.S. government stance, right? Am I right? Okay? It's not that way in every country in the world. Okay? So whenever you build that end to your nation, okay, that it doesn't care what you do as far as worship, okay, you're going to get some pretty weird consequences from that, some unintended consequences. And we're never going to mandate any kind of worship, okay, as human beings. But in the end... (laughs) Whenever everything is righted and Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, there won't be but one God. Okay? And that's the perfect state. That's the perfect state. So as we think about this, I mean, we have this, we glorify freedom. Okay? But freedom also allows people to choose. When you choose, you can choose between right and wrong. Okay, and what we have what we have ceased to do in our nation is we have ceased to ask ourselves important questions about freedom. Yeah, Paul says in First uh, Corinthians six twelve, he says, "I have the right to do anything you say, but everything is not beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything." So we have ceased to ask this question as a nation. Is it good that this happens? Okay? So we could say, oh, we have freedom of speech. Now that's been interpreted as have freedom to have pornography. Okay? But nobody asks, nobody in the government is asking the question, is that good? Okay? People have freedom to choose to live whatever lifestyle they want to live. But no one is asking, is it good? Is it good, the results of that lifestyle? And that's what God would have us know. And he would spare us the big experiment. Okay? Because he tells us the things that he commands for our own good. And if we would listen to it, and if we would obey it, we would enjoy what God has for us in our lives. So, Our part in all this. So God is a molder and a judge of nations. 
people and leaders can change the course that God has determined for a nation. Whether it's He's determined to judge them, but they repent like Nineveh, okay, and God uh, relents of His judgment. Or He can determine to bless them like Israel, but they disobey Him, so then He relents and He causes disaster to fall upon them. So in that, God gives us a personal responsibility and that is to repent of our own evil and to follow Him. And that is the answer for what will become of our nation. I don't know what will become of our nation. I have no idea. I, I really don't. But I know that God has limits for what He will tolerate from nations. I know that He, he singles out nations with pride and the rulers with pride. I know that it's nothing for him to pick up or put down a nation. And I know that we're seeing a lot of roller coasters in our nation. And I think God is trying to wake us up. I think he's trying to wake us up. And one of the things he's saying to us is to, is we talked a little bit last week about idols. Um, I think sometimes our nation is an idol. Sometimes we pray a lot of confidence in our country, in our monetary system, in the value of the dollar, in what will happen with our banks, and all, all of that. We place a lot of confidence in that. And I, I think we've learned in the last year that confidence is misplaced. Our confidence should be in God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder. You're in control of all things. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to take our own personal responsibility in our nation and follow you closely. We ask that you would help us to accept our personal responsibility to submit ourselves to you and to spread the truth, the freedom, the grace, the love, and the blessing that there is in following Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.